seated. Well, you turn with your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Well, to return to 1 John in due time today, we're going to look at the transfiguration from Mark's Gospel. So we're just going to look at verses 2 through 8, but I will begin reading at chapter 8, verse 34, all the way to chapter 9, verse 13, to set the context. Mark chapter 8, begin reading at verse 34. When he had called the, called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the clouds saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord our God, we are thankful for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is perfect in Godhood, and he is like us in manhood in every way, yet without sin. Thank you that he is our Lord and Savior. Thank you that he is fully God and fully man, very God of very God, that he truly is this one who is one person in two natures. And we are thankful for the revelation of him here at this transfiguration. Thank you for his heavenly glory. Thank you for who he is. And we're thankful for what he does. Thank you that he goes to Jerusalem to die. And thank you that he dies upon Calvary's tree to save wretched sinners like us. Thank you that he has redeemed us from our sin. Thank you that he bore the penalty that we deserve in himself and upon himself in our stead. Thank you for what he has done. He who became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. 
And thank you for his nearness even now. Thank you for your dwelling amongst us even now. Thank you that in him we see how the word tabernacles among your people. And we're thankful that even as the spirit was poured out on Pentecost, we saw that end time tabernacle come down. Thank you that Christ is the temple. Christ is the tabernacle. And as we walk this world, we know that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit as well. It is where you dwell with us. And thank you that as we gather, you're building a temple. You are building your church. And thank you that you do gather. uh, You dwell amongst your saints. Thank you so much for this truth. Even though we don't always feel it, we don't always sense it, it. It remains to be true. It is, as you have said in your word. And so help us to cling to that. Help us to know Christ's nearness. Help us to know that we are united to Christ, especially as we suffer in this present age. Sometimes we can be perplexed with the world around us. Sometimes we can be discouraged with our own struggles. It help us to be reminded that Christ is our triumphant lamb who reigns supreme and is the one who dwells with us day by day. So we pray that you'd be with us. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray that you'd uplift us. And we do pray that you'd send forth your spirit to give us illumination once again to understand what your word says. Thank you that you help us understand who you are. Thank you that you help us understand what you've done. Be pleased to strengthen your saints. Be pleased to save sinners. And we pray in all things you'd be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, there are some messages and words that are hard for us to hear, especially when we've thought something our entire life. And here comes someone and he flips that on its head. And this is what the disciples are going through at this time in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples had a geopolitical view of what the Messiah would do. When the Messiah comes, he's going to be a conquering king. He's going to march against Rome and he's going to liberate the people from their oppression at the hands of the Roman Empire. That is what they were looking for. That is what they were hoping for. That is what they thought the Messiah was going to do. Well, here comes Jesus, and he is a triumphant king, but here comes the king, here comes the Messiah, and he starts talking about suffering. He starts talking about how the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He talks about how the Son of Man is going to die. They do not have a category for suffering in their wheelhouse. They should have, based upon Isaiah 53, but based upon the way in which Judaism had developed by this time, suffering was something that they did not think the Messiah was going to do. And so they had this triumphant confession. We come to the heart of Mark's gospel. Peter confesses, you're the Christ, you're the son of God. And then Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter can't handle it. Peter says, may it never be. And then Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Jesus needs to show them something. Jesus is teaching them something about what it means to be the Messiah. That seems to be the main thrust of chapters 8 through 10. It's on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to suffer and to die. And as he makes his way to Jerusalem in chapters 8 through 10, he is teaching the disciples about who he is. He is teaching them about what messianic identity looks like, and it has to do with suffering. They're going to suffer. He is going to suffer. Jesus is preparing them for this reality. But as he prepares them for this reality, he also gives them an assurance. He gives them an assurance of power, an assurance of triumph, an assurance of enthronement, which is what we're going to see today with this transfiguration. Now, we're not we don't see 
Christ in his heavenly glory, yet we believe him. And whether we have seen Christ in his heavenly glory or not, we still need to hear him. Whether the disciples had seen him in his heavenly glory or not, they still needed to hear him. You see, the problem remains, uh, the problem seems to be very clear. The disciples were not hearing him. And that's why the father, as he speaks, he says, this is my beloved son, hear him. What you say about Jesus, what you've heard about Jesus has everlasting ramifications. Here's the one who is the son of God. Here's the one who lived, died and rose again. Do you believe this to be true? If you answer that question in the positive, be assured you have salvation. If you answer that question, in the negative, then if you, unless you believe upon him, you will die in your trespasses and sins. Jesus, the prophet must be heard. We must not forget what he says. We must not forget what is revealed concerning him in his word. So the problem is people don't hear him. And the problem is people do not fear him, which is what we also see as well in these verses. And hopefully we'll unpack that as we go through. But in Mark 9 verses 2 through 8, Jesus reveals himself with power to his inner disciples who are concerned about suffering. Here's what's going to happen. Suffering's going to occur. But yet here is the king who is triumphant. Here is the king in his heavenly glory. Here is the king who shall reign supreme. So we'll look at this transfiguration under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll see our God revealed in verses two through four. Secondly, we'll see our God revered in verses five and six. And secondly, we'll see our God who remains in verses seven and eight. So three R's, a God revealed, a God revered, and a God who remains. So let's first look at our God revealed in verses two through four. So Jesus is taking three disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration and the context, the place in the gospel is important. Again, we've come to that main question in chapter eight. Remember, Mark is answering the question, who is Jesus? And we finally drive to that point where Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the son of God. And then Jesus talks about what disciples are going to endure. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The son of man is going to suffer. The son of man is going to endure the cross. And after the cross, he is going to receive the crown. But the disciples wanted the crown before the cross. They wanted glory rather than suffering. But what Jesus is teaching is that the cross precedes the crown. The savior is going to die upon that cross, but that's the way in which he's going to triumph. But the disciples have to understand that the life in which we live in this world is going to be filled with suffering. There's triumph. We reign in Christ, but yet in this present evil age, as this world is not our home, we are going to suffer. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. 
The Messiah is suffering now. The Messiah is going to suffer, but the Messiah is also going to reign. And so after Jesus talks about suffering, he gives an assurance in chapter 9, verse 1. Surely I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. They're going to see something about the kingdom in its power. They're going to see something about the king in his power. And what I think is going on here, what verse one refers to, I think refers to the resurrection of our Lord and his ascension into heaven. Later on in chapter 14, Jesus says that you will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. When we talk about Jesus coming in the cloud, the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven, even in verse 38, I don't think it refers to his second coming. I think it refers to him ascending into the ancient of days, refers to ascension into heaven. Where do we see Christ triumphing? It's when the one who is raised from the dead is seated at the right hand of God, the father. And so things might look bleak for the disciples now, but Jesus is assuring them that the son of man is going to reign. He is going to win the day. He is going to be resurrected and he is going to ascend into heaven. But the transfiguration then, what do we do with that? That is a foretaste of the king in his heavenly glory. So even before the Savior goes to die upon the cross, after he's just probably scarred the disciples with respect to suffering, he gives them the assurance that they need. You're going to see the kingdom of God present with power. They've already seen in breakings. They've already seen some miraculous things that the Messiah has done, but they're going to see the king in his heavenly glory before he goes to the cross and before he triumphs. God gives them the assurance that they need as they make their way to Jerusalem. And so, verse 2. After six days, Jesus takes the three inner friends, the three inner disciples, Peter, James, and John. Six days after that promise that we see in verse 1, he leads them up on a high mountain apart uh, by them. So Peter, the sum referred to in verse one refers to Peter, James and John. I do think there's a lot of connections with the transfiguration with the Old Testament. And certainly one allusion that we can see in verse two is the allusion back to Moses ascending the mountain of Sinai. And there were some who went with them, but Moses eventually went further. But the reason that's important, because it has to do with dwelling has to do with tabernacling, and that plays an important role when we get to verse 7. It has to do with God meeting his people, and what God has done throughout the entire Bible is meet his people on mountains. Mountains play a huge role in Scripture. Eden is referred to a mountain in Ezekiel chapter 28. We obviously have Mount Sinai. We have Mount Zion. And brethren, guess where we get to come to now as the saints of the new heavens and new earth of the new covenant? We come to the heavenly Zion. And we shall reign with Christ in Zion forever when he comes again. So mountains play an important role in scripture. It is where God uh, engages in theophany. He appears to his people on these mountains. If I may say, then it doesn't mean if you go on a hike up a high mountain that you're going to meet God on that high mountain or if you 
curl up in a ball and roll over, you'll find. If you recognize God's creation and the goodness of God in that way on a mountain, that's wonderful. But the way in which God dwells with us is not by ascending the mountain, but it's by God who comes down that we might then ascend in the one who is the tabernacle. Brethren, the reason that we can dwell with God is because of Christ Jesus. And whether we have an experience or not, whether we see the heavenly glory or not, it doesn't change the fact that Christ tabernacled with us. Christ is our pledge in heaven, and he's poured out the spirit that we might dwell with God. And brethren, the reality is every time we gather on the Lord's day, we do ascend the mountain of the Lord, don't we? We do ascend the mountain of the Lord as where God dwells with his people as a glimpse and foretaste of what that heavenly glory shall be like. So mountains are good. Climb them if you want. But the mountains in scripture have important, redemptive, historical, theophanic, God appearing significance. And we see this with the one who is then transfigured. And he was, verse 2, transfigured before them. There is a change in Jesus's appearance, a manner that is visible. Again, that's what theophany means. And what we're seeing here, this revelation was transfigured. What the father is revealing concerning his son. He was transfigured before them. The one who is going to suffer is the one who has heavenly glory is the one who is God, is the one who reigns supreme, is the one who is very God, a very God, and is the one who is, uh, took on a human nature and is like us in every way, yet without sin. But as he's walking the world, especially for his first 30 years, it wasn't that apparent. Yes, he was perfect in every way. We forget that, don't we? Jesus lived 30 years of which we don't know much about. But one thing we do know for sure is that he lived it perfectly. He lived the law in its perfection. And then here he comes. We start to see further inbreaking with further miracles, a sign that the new age, the messianic age is dawning and coming in. And certainly, uh, so we see more of that as it unfolds. But for the most part, as he's walking along, he looks just like you and I. So the disciples then have this special vision that they have from him, one who really was actually trans and more than a vision transfigured before them as there is the revelation of the king in his power. Peter actually records for us that they were eyewitnesses in second Peter chapter one, verses 16 through 18, talking about the word of God, talking about the prophet we need to hear. He says in verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. The father is showing his disciples who this one is. He's showing the disciples that this one is God and that this one is the Messiah, the one who came to die for his people, but he is the one who is God. Now it was about two and a half years ago is when I said that. I don't know if you guys remember this, who were there. 
two wolves were sitting in the back there, and one guy got up and said, that's blasphemy. Brethren, and those men are actually still wandering around the lower mainland. There's two guys. They look the same. They dress the same. I don't get it. Uh, but they walk around, and they go to churches. They sit at the back, and then they yell at the ladies, and they're anti-Trinitarian. They're still doing that. A friend of mine told me that they actually came to his church about, about a month ago, but it was around this time, if you remember, that those men stood up and tried to... Um, they spoke blasphemy. They said I spoke blasphemy, but they spoke blasphemy. And thankfully, our men got up and goodbye to those guys. And they've never been back since. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing. But we must recognize and see that Jesus is God. And that's exactly what Mark is showing. That's what the Father is showing in these verses that are absolutely crystal clear. And we see this with what, he, uh, what his appearance looks like in verse 3. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. You see, we're sensory people, aren't we? We, we know by sense. We see things, we hear things, we smell things. Notice how the Bible tries to explain his purity. He's, we use his heavenly dry cleaning to try and highlight that for us. His clothes became exceedingly white like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. You see, all our words are inadequate to describe the perfection of our God, to describe the one who is absolute purity, the one who is absolute perfection, the one who is absolute, who is perfect Light, But yet we have that language there for us. It teaches us again about the purity of our Lord and Savior. No naturalistic explanation can be given as this one is revealed before his people. And something else that we can see, what I think perhaps is uh, another Old Testament allusion that shows that Jesus is God, uh, is also in Daniel chapter 7. We read Daniel 7 at the outset on purpose. One like the Son of Man shall come to the Ancient of Days, his ascension into heaven. But if you saw in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garments was white. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. See, not only is Jesus the Messiah, but he, not only is he the son of man, but he is also the one who is the ancient of days. He is the one who is God. He is the one who is absolute perfection. He is the one who, has, who is consubstantial with the Father. White, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. So he's transfigured. He shows that he is God, but also we see in verse 4 the task of the one who is transfigured. And we see verse 4, and Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Luke confirms they're talking about what he would do at Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Why is he going to that place of death? It is to die for his people. He is discussing his role as mediator, but also his role as prophet, priest, and king, as the one who fulfills all the law and the prophets. Don't miss that it's Moses 
and Elijah that he's speaking to. There's a redemptive historical thrust. As the Bible unfolds, we see things revealed about the one who would come. We have to have the old and the new. You can't have the new without the old, and the old is incomplete without the new. They go hand in hand. And Jesus does eventually say that all the law and the prophets point to me. And if you remember in Malachi chapter 4, there is this promise about Elijah who would come. And so we see the first and we see the promise of that last prophet, Elijah, who would come. Now, questions arise concerning him uh, in verses 9 and following. And we know that the Elijah to come is John the Baptist. This is redemptive historical. What they're talking about here is that the new covenant is about to begin. The new covenant is about to, uh, the new age is about to be inaugurated with the dying and rising of this prophet. So they're speaking about it. There's uh, Moses, the first Elijah or John, the Baptist, the last Malachi promises he who would come. Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus about what he would do. What's also very interesting is that both Elijah and Moses met God on Sinai in a theophany. We know Moses as he's actually on Sinai and receiving the law. But do you remember Elijah after he flees the prophets of Baal and after Jezebel says, I'm going to end you basically, where does he go? Sinai. And that is where we see God reveal himself in that still small voice. And there is some connection, I do think, or some at least conceptual illusion. The disciples have heard about suffering and they needed to be reminded of the triumphant king. Well, that's the same with Elijah. He had triumphed, but then now he's going to die. Lord, take my life. He's in a pit of despair. He is concerned with his own life. He's concerned with the things going on in Israel. And what does God do? He reveals himself to Elijah and says, 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. See, God does meet his people in the times that we need it. Not always in these, not in these theophanic ways, but God is pleased to speak to us in his word. We need to be reminded that the king has triumphed. That is the encouragement that this passage should bring to us. They have seen the king in his glory. They're going to see him die. They're going to see him resurrected in glory. And they see him now uh, as he is. And that's the hope that we have. The disciples saw it. We believe it. The church triumphant sees it. And we, the church militant, believe what is said concerning him. He really is reigning. We don't see it, brethren, but he really is at the right hand of God, the father. And that is the comfort and encouragement you and I need as we suffer in this present age. Elijah suffered. The disciples are suffering. Daniel, they're in exile. And here's this vision about the one who comes to the ancient of days. This one whose kingdom shall have no end. But what about all those other kingdoms? What about Persia? What about Greece? What about Rome? What about they're all going to fall? And his kingdom shall reign forever. Shouldn't that give us encouragement, dear brethren, when we are suffering in this present evil age? Our king reigns supreme. Our king is triumphant. And when we have moments where we forget that moments, is Christ really reigning? We come back to the transfiguration and be reminded that he reigns now supreme. By the way, that's also the point of the book of Revelation. 
Christ is triumphant. We go through tribulation. Whatever you might think about all the visions and the hard stuff. By the way, the visions build upon one another. I think they're different angles highlighting the same things. We suffer Christ reigns. This present world is filled with tribulation. Christ is on high. Christ will win the battle. Babylon's going to fall. Beasts are going to be no more. I don't think there's going to be an end time beast, dear brethren. But I think there are many beasts that permeate throughout the centuries and permeate even now. There are beasts in this world. Well, who is triumphant overall? The king who reigns supreme. So, brethren, as we suffer, don't forget that the king reigns forever. And we see the disciples receive that assurance with this transfiguration uh, before them on Mount Sinai. He reveals himself. He reveals that he is our God. So that's our God revealed. Let's then look secondly at our God revered in verses 5 and 6. Our God revered. Now, I don't know what I would do in that moment, so I cut Peter a little bit of slack, but verses 5 and 6, notice Peter, who is a ready, fire, aim kind of guy, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, again, Peter doesn't really understand what's going on. He calls him Rabbi. I mean, he's not just a rabbi, is he? The one who's transfigured there, shining with this great uh, white laundry or white uh, garment. Uh, he doesn't know how to handle it. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Okay. And then he speaks and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Why? Because he did not know what to say. I mean, here it is. What's going on? What do we do here? Oh, maybe we're just going to be here forever, right? That's why he talks about the tabernacling. You see, the Feast of Tabernacles uh, was a reminder of God's redemptive significance out of the Exodus and the people then dwelling uh, in tabernacles throughout uh, the wilderness. And the Jews anticipated a further coming of the Lord when uh, God would tabernacle with his people in the last days. And so... Peter thinks it's here. Last days are here. This is it. Uh, I don't care about those other eight guys who are down the mountain. We're just going to continue on forever. He thinks it's going to be like Sinai. He assumes the new age has begun and they're going to enjoy it for more than just a moment. And so he says, Rabbi, it's good. And Rabbi, let's do this. Rabbi, let's try this. He has a lot of advice that he doesn't know what he's saying. Let's make three, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This is interesting because he did not know what to say. I notice why he doesn't know what to say for they were greatly afraid. Here is the king in his glory and there is this recognition that he is not just a mere man. Even if he just says rabbi, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to do with himself. But there is still this recognition of a proper fear before him. See, brethren, we ought to rejoice before our God, but we also ought to revere our God. We ought to recognize that he is God and we are man. We have been made in his image, not he in ours. Brethren, certainly Reformed people aren't, aren't known for their rejoicing. We should be more joyful. Uh, but reverence, hopefully, is a little bit easier for us sometimes. But even then, isn't reverence hard? Sometimes we waltz in. We sometimes are thinking about other things. We don't speak in such a way that is in reverence to our God. And so we see their response. They were greatly afraid. They've appeared before the one who is God. They fall down before him because they don't know what to do. They're fearful of his glory here. In Matthew's gospel, they're fearful of the voice that comes out of heaven because he is a sight 
to behold. And brethren, we ought to fear our Lord. And when I talk about fearing our Lord, we've talked about the difference between a servile fear and a filial fear. A servile fear, everyone who doesn't believe on Christ will have a servile fear forever, by the way. Isn't that kind of terrifying to think about that? Uh, Everyone is going to want the rocks to fall upon them because they're going to be so afraid when this one who is mightier than them comes again. We must recognize God's mightiness, dear brethren, but a filial fear is one that like a father, whether a child to a father, where one might be fearful of that father, yet finds refuge in that father. The same thing is true with God. The one we fear is the one we find refuge in. The one we need to be saved from is the way, the one who saves us. And so we do not have to come to Sinai, dear brethren, in this servile fear. I mean, it was a right fear in Exodus 19. Uh, they, the people were fearful. Here's this thunder and lightning to recognize God's holiness. But we still come to Zion and we do so with fear, but it's a loving fear. It is a fear that is, when I talk about a loving fear, I'm talking about faith and trusting in that one God. We must recognize that Jesus is good, but he is not safe, dear brethren. We must fear him rather than man. Man can be fearful, but in verse 38, he talks about really this ashamed, being fearful of man rather than more fearful of God most high. A healthy fear is a recognize of who Jesus is, not just what he does, but who he is in finding our refuge in him. And certainly the disciples do that. Certainly God's people do that. It ought to be a healthy, holy fear that we have in him and also a fear that we have as we worship him as well. So it's not a servile, it's not a paralyzing fear, but it's a loving fear, a recognizing he is our God who is mighty, but also a God that we can look to each and every day. If you're an unbeliever, believe upon Christ. Fear him by faith and you shall be saved. If you're a believer, fear him as your father. Walk uh, in ways that are pleasing unto him, but do so with a faith and trust in what he has done. We ought to fear our Lord and fear who Jesus is. Fear that he is mighty and strong. Is he not? Is he not a mighty king? Is he not a triumphant warrior? As the Bible often speaks about in the Old Testament, has he not triumphed over sin and death? And as such, we ought to fear this one who is our king. He ought to be revered. He ought to be feared. So that's our God revered. Uh, Let's then look thirdly and finally at our God who remains. Our God who remains in verses 7 and 8. And notice we see this presence language come and a revelation uh, in verse 7. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. Our minds should be drawn back to Sinai in Exodus 40. After the tabernacle has been built, what happens? The cloud descends upon the tabernacle. After Solomon dedicates the temple, what happens? The cloud descends upon the temple. The cloud was a sign of Yahweh's presence. And look what we have here. A cloud came and overshadowed them. God is dwelling with his people. He has dwelt 
in the Son, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In Him, the fullness of the deity dwells bodily in the incarnation. But even the disciples here see the cloud come, and their minds should have been drawn back to what happened at Sinai. God dwells with his people. But God doesn't just dwell with his people. God speaks to his people. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Again, these men need a messianic affirmation. They just heard about suffering, but he is going to reign. It draws our attention back to the baptism in Mark chapter 1. And I do believe here and in Mark 1, 1 does have some allusion to Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And even in Psalm 2, we see it's the triumphant king. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. He is the one who will dash his enemies to pieces like a potter's vessel. Even though the nations rage and plot a vain thing. The disciples need to hear that. They're going to see their, their king and their, 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 their uh, Messiah suffer. They're going to be scattered. They're going to see him die a brutal death upon that cross. But they need this affirmation. Here is the king in his heavenly glory. And he shall triumph and he shall reign. This is my beloved son. The one who is the son of man. The one who is the Messiah is the one who is God. And I do believe this is a precursor to Mark 15, 39, when the centurion says, surely this one was the son of God. Remember, that's like the only time that son of God is used in Mark's gospel. Remember, Mark's more subtle that way. Mark kind of keeps things close to the chest to draw us in. Even the word Christ is not is used in chapter one and then chapter eight on purpose to cause us to stop and consider who this Jesus is. But the centurion says, truly, this man is the son of God. Well, we know that based upon how the father speaks in verse seven. This is my beloved son. And then notice the task. Hear him. What they must do. Hear him. Jesus has been speaking already. The repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He has called Israel to hear in Mark chapter four with the parables. Now, remember, the parables were for the purpose of blinding and hardening. And but Jesus does say who has uh, ears, let him hear a prophetic call. And certainly with the, the, the with Elijah and Moses there, the idea of prophet is in view. Why do we need a prophet, dear brethren? Why do we need someone who speaks to us as the children's catechism says because we're ignorant. We need one to speak to us and to show us what sin is and to show us what the kingdom of God is, to show us what the kingdom of heaven is and to show us where our salvation lies. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is concerned with the salvation of souls. That's why Jesus says in Mark 1, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. How do you enter into the kingdom of heaven, dear brethren? It is by faith. And what is the kingdom of heaven in this present world? It is the church, not some sort of utopia where we change society. Brethren, how do we triumph according to Revelation? Suffering. How do we triumph? Through the death, uh, through the death of our Lord and dying in him. He who is faithful unto death shall overcome. Brethren, I don't know if that makes you feel sad, but it shouldn't. It should make you feel encouraged. We might see society go down the drain, but 
And it is going down the drain. Who am I kidding? But Christ reigns supreme overall. And let's be honest. Society has always been down the drain, whether we like it or not. We're filled. We live in a sinful, present, evil age. And what do we need? A triumphant king, the one who suffered and died for us. And our lot in life is suffering. And we shall suffer and die with him and in him and be raised with him as well. That is what we need. We need this mediator who is prophet, priest, and king. And we need to hear him. Again, notice in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he who has ears to hear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's, that's at the end of all seven of those letters, but at the beginning, it's talking about the Son of Man who speaks. And so, brethren, how do we hear Christ? It is through the Word and through the Spirit. Do we not still hear our Christ now? Does he not still speak through his Word? Does he not tell us what we need and what the Scripture Says, Is he not that prophet like unto Moses who has come, the one prophesied of, uh, or the one uh, who uh, Moses is a type of him, according to Deuteronomy chapter 18? Well, we have that prophet. Hear him. And that's also Peter's concern in 1 Peter 1. When there are false prophets, who do you need to hear? You need to hear him. You need to hear Christ. If some guys are walking down the street and they say to you, Jesus is not God, you say wrong, because what does Jesus highlight here? What does the word say? Jesus is God. Brethren, hear him. Hear your prophet. Hear the prophet par excellence, the one that Elijah and the one that Moses pointed to, the one who brings in the new heavens and new earth, the one who inaugurates that new covenant of which we are a part of. And if you're an unbeliever here today, hear Christ. He is God. He has said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel and you shall be saved. Hear him. If you do not heed him, you will die in your trespasses and sins. Hear him, believe upon him, and you shall be saved saved. So after all this theophany, notice what we see in verse eight. And perhaps I think this is the most comforting part of the whole thing. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. After all this fanfare, after all this transfiguration, after all this shining, after this cloud, after this word from heaven, notice there's no one else but Jesus. He is the God who remains with his people. He is not taken up like Elijah. He doesn't get, try to get out of going to that cross. He is the one who remains and he is the one who stays, and he is the one who will walk to that cross to die for his people. Edward says, the one who calls his disciples to deny their cross does not abandon them for glory, but turns from glory to accompany them on the way to Jerusalem and the cross. There's another reason we do not need to fear our Lord, dear brethren, because notice in Matthew's gospel, he says to them, do not be afraid. 
similar to the Son of Man in Revelation when John falls down after he sees this fiery eyes. And what does he say? Stand up. Do not be afraid. That's what someone who loves his people does. They're fearful. They've bowed in fear. And he lifts them up in grace. Is he not the God that we need to walk this present age? Is he not the God who has triumphed? But is he also not the God who is with his people? That's what I think verse 8 communicates for us. All the fanfare is gone, but there is Jesus with his disciples. We do not need to fear because he is with us. Even though we are going to suffer the cross, dear brethren, he is with us every step of the way, isn't he? Isn't that what he communicates to Paul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Just as the Son of Man suffered, so will his people. But Christ will be with us every step of the way. Whatever suffering you are going through, Christ is with you every step of the way. It's not just that he has triumphed, but that he dwells. And he dwells with you and I by the Spirit. He walks with us day by day. He's given us that promise to never leave us nor forsake us. He's given us that promise to walk with us and guide us and to be faithful unto death. Whatever suffering we might have to endure in this present evil age. It's a reminder for us. God is triumphant. God is with us when we suffer. But also there's the reminder that this world is not all there is. And suffering is but a momentary light affliction. And then we shall dwell with Christ forever in eternal bliss. And this is what I think Ryle communicates so well. And this is where we'll close. He says, let us see in the story of the transfiguration, a remedy for such doubting thoughts as these, like what we see with Peter. The vision of the Holy Mount is a gracious pledge that glorious things are in store for the people of God. Their crucified Savior shall come again in power and great glory. His saints shall all come with him and are in safe keeping until that happy day. We may wait patiently. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Our Christ is triumphed. Our Christ is with us. We have our God who is triumphant and a God who remains. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the revelation of yourself in our Christ and in your word. Thank you that he really is the one who was transfigured on that mount, and he really is the one who died on the cross, and really is the one who was resurrected, the one who ascended, the one who is really reigning now. Thank you that he has been given all things and all authority. Thank you that he shall fill all in all as he advances his church to the end of the age. Thank you that all of this is meant to be an assurance for us in our suffering, an assurance that you are with us, an assurance that you guide us, an assurance that you keep us uh, until the end, whatever suffering we might have to endure, but also the promise that we shall be glorified, the promise that we shall see Christ as he is. And thank you for the hope that we have. We pray that we would walk by faith. Thank you that we can walk in hope based upon what you have said And thank you for the eyewitnesses who saw this very thing happen. They saw our Christ transfigured and they saw our Christ resurrected. And even though we have not seen it, we believe it to be true. And we know that this is because of your working that you have done. 
And thank you for the comfort that you give to your people in times of suffering. We might be perplexed. We might be weary and heavy laden. But help us to remember that our king is on high. Our king reigns over all. And our king is walking with us day by day by the power of the spirit. So we pray for any here today who do not know you, please. We pray that they would hear Christ, that they would hear what he says, that they would believe upon him and be saved. And we pray for your saints, that you would uplift, that you would encourage, that you would strengthen. Thank you that you are our God and that you love us and that you care for us and that we see your love for us in the cross work of Christ. And we know your love for us now as you walk with us day by day. So we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of